Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's May 3rd. 1938, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It was today in history in 1938 that cinema owner Harry Brandt took out a full-page ad in the independent film journal complaining about poor ticket sales for movies starring actors he considered box office poison. These cinematic wastes of space... The likes of Catherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo and Mae West. <laughs> I mean, it is astonishing when you list them like that, that it's just the most obvious nonsense. Harry Brandt was trying to basically account for the fact that box office sales were dropping off massively. And while many people's approach was, well, let's try and get people back to the theatres, here was a bit of finger pointing. He and the group for which he was speaking were trying to attribute the decline in sales to these overpaid stars. Yeah, and the intended audience they were trying to reach was the Hollywood machine, right? The producers and the executive producers and the studio bosses, which is possibly why they don't actually directly point mm. the finger at them. Like, you know, it, it, this is in the Hollywood Reporter, yeah, in a red bordered ad titled Wake Up. It's an industry rag. It's saying to the studio heads, look, guys, stop making films with these stars that you've got contracting for high salaries. You know, we're not getting bums on seats because you're employing the wrong talent. Whereas actually, you know, as as we've indicated, there's nothing wrong mm. with Catherine Hepburn. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> Mae West. It's that possibly it was the very studio heads themselves commissioning mm. the wrong ideas. It was the scriptwriters making films that were, you know, too plotty, not fun enough. Yeah, I mean, 1938, in fairness, had been a pretty grim year for American cinema, which is ironic because 1939 would be considered a legendary year. There were lots of factors. The Depression had only just started to lift, so people didn't have as much money to spend. There was the political turmoil going on across Europe, which was interfering with overseas box office. I mean, the best-performing movie of the year to date, so, you know, we're in May, had been Test Pilot, which is a Clark Gable vehicle that's now totally forgotten. You know, 1937 hadn't been great either. Snow White was by far the runaway success. In May West quote, the only picture to make real money was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and that would have made twice as much if they'd had me play Snow White. <laughs> it didn't help that by this point the movie industry was huge and churning out a volume of movies that now seems incredible. I mean, you look at what was coming out in 1938, it was, you know, quality big name fair like Jezebel, which was kind of a gone with the wind knockoff but had Betty Davis in it, to, you know, really cheap stuff like Women in Prison, Child Bride and Race mm. Suicide. <laughs> the reason that this was all a problem for cinema owners in particular was that at the time, studios owned most of the cinema chains this would carry on till the late 40s so at this time if you were an independent theater owner and harry brown was the head of the independent theater owners association 
you were forced to accept what was called block booking. So the, the studio would come to you and say, you have to show basically a package of our movies and we won't tell you what they are and you won't have the choice to say yes or no. And if you don't take them all, then you won't have any. So if you know, if you wanted the test pilots, you had to take the child brides yeah. and the race suicides. And so what Harry Brandt was saying in the copy of the ad that he took out was that the studios, because they had tied all these stars into big, multi-year, expensive contracts, they then had to get the stars making movies, even if they weren't making money, just to make the most of the contracts. And so the independent theatre owners were having to buy all of these movies that nobody wanted to watch, and they weren't able to pick and choose. They were stuck with them. So he, he writes in it, Practically all of the major studios are burdened with stars whose public appeal is negligible, receiving tremendous salaries necessitated by contractual obligations. This condition is not only burdensome to the studios and its stockholders, but it's likewise no boon to exhibitors who in the final analysis suffer by the non-drawing power of these players. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of unfortunate in a way for Brand that he had just stumbled upon this incredibly powerful phrase, box office poison, which, you know, even though he was very squarely trying to direct his views to a particular audience, this tagline itself quickly gained like broad popularity after, Mm. um, you know, it was republished by actual newspapers who I suppose had been a bit titillated by the idea that this particular grouping of stars were the poison that was rotting the, the industry away. Yeah, but you know, Brandt wasn't completely wrong either. I think that is worth saying. He was wrong, obviously, that these particular stars were box office poison, and it was obviously proved later not to be the case, and these people are still legends and no one knows who he is. But isn't it right that the independent theatre owners of America have a voice in what films they get to show? Because don't they know what their audiences want to see? And isn't it also right, and has proven to be the case of the world we live in now, ever since Jaws, you know, brands like Star Wars, Spider-Man, whatever, are bigger than the stars that are in them? Isn't it also the case that audiences will come and see something almost regardless of who's in it sometimes, and that the studios had skewed too far into keeping these stars on contract and indulging their whims over everything else. I mean, he had a point. Yeah, and I mean, it didn't seem to affect anyone's career directly. I mean, some of the stars he named continued to thrive. Some of them, you know, fizzled away in a way that seems sort of natural for the Hollywood career path. But the box of his poison label did haunt them for several years, especially Hepburn. It became mm. really associated with mm. Hepburn. She was Which already, is really unfair. <laughs> she was, well, she was already weakened by not being like other female stars. And right after the article came out, her studio RKO, offered her a new contract but the next project was to be this B picture called Mother Carey's Chickens so emboldened by the fact that she was incredibly confident and she had family wealth behind her she turned it down even though she was now in the news as being box office poison she went independent at a time when almost every star was tightly contracted to a studio she made a movie called Holiday, one of my favourite films of all time, but it didn't do very well. She made it for Columbia, and then her career was kind of in freefall. And at this point, she embarked on the most incredible comeback. She went to do a play on Broadway called The Philadelphia Story. Her boyfriend, Howard Hughes, bought the movie rights before the play even opened. And Hepburn herself was had a lot of input on how her character should come across. And when it came to making the adaptation, she said, I don't want to make a grand entrance in this picture. Moviegoers think I'm too la-di-da or something. A lot of people want to see me fall flat on my face. And the film opens with a scene in which she 
breaks Harry Grant's golf club and he pushes her down. She literally falls <laughs> on her face. And the whole movie is about humbling her and humanising her in the public imagination. And it went on to be one of the big smash hit movies in 1940. And Harry Brandt himself issued a public retraction of his charge when he saw people queuing to go into a Radio City musical. I mean, that may have also been to do with the fact that some stars had threatened legal action <laughs> against him and his <laughs> co-authors. Um, but, you know, it did have these ongoing ramifications. You know, some of the studios did try to use the advertisement as leverage to negotiate lower salaries for their stars. But the thing was that, you know, even though it had kind of lit this flame that kept burning around the country, most people kind of didn't agree with it. You know, the, the early entertainment columnist Luella Parsons wrote, there's nothing the matter with any of these stars that a good picture won't cure. And I think that must have been everybody's feeling. It still is today. You know, even like stars who are going through a sort of like low moment, a sort of, I don't know, Eddie Murphy or Johnny Depp or whatever, you know that they are ripe for a comeback, like Quentin Tarantino bringing back uh, John Travolta or whatever after years in the wilderness. And you kind of get the sense that even at the time, even for those stars on the list that weren't doing well, people knew that they could still have a career comeback just by making a good film as their next film. Well, I think there's something to be said for his insight in another part of the ad as well. This is part that doesn't get quoted very often, but it's where he talks about what does make good money at the box office. And it's stuff like he singles out the Charlie Chan and the Mr. Moto series. You know, they didn't have big stars in them, but they were short and snappy mystery movies featuring a familiar central character, although they were both played by multiple people. And so when I was reading it, I was thinking, he's describing TV. Mm. He's mm. describing what people want is a TV show. You know, these short, you know, hour-long movies where the detective solves a mystery and then you go back again in three months and you see him do it all again in a slightly different location. You know, he's identifying that desire that's there but wouldn't be tapped into for another, you know, 15 or 20 years. Yeah. He also ends the letter with a phrase that isn't quoted either very often. Sound judgment and good business sense are valuable assets in an industry that is far from being an art. <laughs> and I just thought, wow. Like in 1938, that obviously, you know, he was obviously digging at Hollywood, but it was an acceptable dig. He knew that there'd be people running studios who would nod their heads and say, you're right, this is a business. Mm. Whereas now, even though Hollywood calls itself the business and, you know, it's all about business meetings and the bottom line and how can we leverage this and that. The idea that anyone running a Hollywood studio would concede that it's not an art. Yeah. You know, the whole thing is about blowing smoke up themselves and saying that it is an art, yeah. you know. <laughs> People still talk about, like, which celebrity is or isn't uh, box office poison today. The kind of Sheila LaBeoufs and their, like, Margot Robbie, who just should be making hit picture after hit picture, but actually has you know, recently at least had a series of bombs and I saw her name attached to the idea of box office poison. You know, people really do use it as a shorthand for either star that is past it and over or star that is experiencing a moment of trouble in their career. It's interesting. I mean, is there anyone that would actually put you off from watching a film that you like the sound of? Like someone who was in it, you'd be like, oh, no, it's not for me. Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> really? For me, it's The Rock. Yeah. <laughs> That's a huge plus. <laughs> Tomorrow. They'd already established themselves as publishers of cheap periodicals aimed at working class readers. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Support comes from ServiceNow 
the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.